Memorials and where we choose to put them are a frequent theme on this show. Where we choose to place our monuments says a lot about our value system, what we consider important, and also where and how we want people to be remembered. Not surprisingly, there has been a big push in the latter half of the 20th century to try to standardize the way that our leaders in particular are memorialized. But Americans being what they are, American presidents still try to exert a little bit of personality on their particular grave sites. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So I apologize in advance if this is a little bit of white noise this week, and I thought it would be nice to do something presidential for the inauguration. Apparently, I'm not the only one that is doing this, but since I won't have the chance to do this for another four years, why the heck not? So I apologize if you're a little bit presidented out, but I tried to take a slightly different bent. I have in the past been pretty clear about the fact that I really don't enjoy presidential history at all. I think it's boring. I can't name the presidents in order. I know the general themes. I know some of the important things that they did, but for the most part, it's just not my cup of tea. I have done Washington and Lincoln. So if you go back to last year in February, I covered both George Washington's multiple tombs at Mount Vernon, as well as the Lincoln burial site in Springfield, Illinois. I also did a sort of comparison and contrasting episode on the grave of John Adams versus the grave of Thomas Jefferson, of course, because they died the same day, successive presidents, the second and third president contrasting both Southern and Northern burial traditions. So I have covered presidential graves. But I pick and choose because, quite frankly, not a lot of them are all that interesting. One question that I had, though, was when did it become a thing for it no longer to be a burial in a private place, whether it's on an estate like Mount Vernon or Monticello, or in a church like John Adams, when did burial at presidential libraries become a thing? So the topic I want to tackle today is a slightly more modern one in presidential history. And it's looking at the rise and to a certain degree, the fall of the presidential library system and considering their value, both literally and figuratively, And why they have become a convenient, shall I say, dumping ground for presidential remains? Because it's not technically a standardized practice. There are no rules that say you need to be buried at your presidential library. Certainly, not every president has a quote-unquote presidential library. So where did this idea come from? Who started it? These were all questions I wanted to ask. And more importantly, I wanted to ask how much thought is given to these grave sites? Are they part of the initial planning process? Do they happen as sort of an afterthought? I was a little surprised, basically, at the answers to all of my questions. 
I learned a lot. I'm going to be going a little bit first into what presidential libraries are, how they work, because I think it's important to understand. And then I'll go into the presidents who actually are buried at their presidential libraries. And I will take like a, a brief stop along the way to talk about those who have chosen not to be buried at presidential libraries and why. So to start off with, let me break it down. So as of Wednesday, we now have had 46 presidents of the United States. So here is the breakdown of presidential burial spots based on where they're buried. 13 presidents are buried in public cemeteries. This is the biggest group. After that, the next biggest group is going to be private homes and estates. After that, a standalone memorial, think Grant's tomb. There are five of those. Four presidents are buried in national cemeteries. Three are buried in churches. And technically the second most, which I left for the end, is those that are buried at either a presidential library or museum. And that is eight presidents. So we are going to be considering those eight presidents today. And I will also mention, because really it goes back the past 10 presidents, so I'm going to talk a little bit about a couple in between who are not buried at presidential libraries and museums. But so it appears like if you look at it just realistically that a lot of the early presidents chose either private estate burial for the southern gentleman or church burial for the northern in the case of john adams then public cemeteries kind of became the norm the big standalone memorials are all like late 19th century which doesn't surprise me because you know the victorians they love a good monument national cemeteries become more of a thing in the mid 20th century most of those are associated with things other than the presidency. So, for example, Taft was a member of the Supreme Court. That's why he was buried in Arlington. Then, obviously, in the late 20th century, this is when we see the rise of presidential libraries as the preferred burial space. Now, it is worth noting, every president has a library, meaning a collection of papers, of materials, of various mediums that are associated with his presidency. But not every library collection is a presidential library, if that makes sense. Most of these are held by different groups. Now, there are some presidential libraries that have been established in the modern era. Some are actually still under construction that are sort of a posthumous idea. The president may have left his archives to either the state or a local historical society. In the case of somebody like Washington, his collection is held by Mount Vernon. It's a, you know, a nonprofit organization. So there were different arrangements. So every president does have, it's not like somebody's like, hmm, I guess James K. Polk, he just, he didn't do anything in office, so he has no papers. They still have papers. They are just not necessarily in one location. Now, to understand this, the next thing I need to talk about is actually how presidential libraries work. It starts with the Presidential Libraries Act of 1955. Presidential libraries are privately erected and funded 
but publicly maintained. So the president, his nonprofit, or another organization working on his behalf raises the funds for the presidential library. And then once it is established, the collections are placed there and it is maintained long term by the federal government. After 1955, nine more libraries were established using this model. So under this model, the Office of Presidential Libraries, which is maintained by the National Archives and Records Administration, will take over the administering of this collection. Now, these collections, obviously, in the modern day, include a lot more things uh, than they may have historically. Things changed even more in 1978 with the Presidential Records Act, which requires that constitutional, statutory, and ceremonial documents, or documents that address these duties of the presidency, become the property of the U.S. federal government when a president leaves office. So this basically means most of the collection by default. So the archivist of the United States assumes custody and allows the public library, excuse me, the presidential library to become the repository of them. But still, it is under the auspices of the federal government. Essentially, they're saying that we don't want state secrets to be floating around, even if it's declassified and in the past. We don't want them in the hands of just anybody. We want to have oversight And probably with good reason, there was a pretty big controversy in 2007 when the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library somehow misplaced 80,000 items. I'm going to say that one more time. 80,000. Now, you and I combined, listener, probably will never own 80,000 items in our time. You can lose a couple of pages. I can see how that happens. A flood. You might even lose a couple thousand pages. 80,000 items feels like it's on purpose. 80,000 items feels like somebody backed up a truck to a loading dock in the middle of the night. So you can see why there is some concern over these. And this is the whole reason for the Presidential Records Act. In 1986, the Presidential Libraries Act is again amended And at this point, I think they started to realize just how expensive it was to maintain these. And they required that private endowments and the amount of private endowments for presidential libraries had to be linked to the size of the facility to offset costs. When I talk about the rise and fall of presidential libraries, that's part of it. I don't think that they ever anticipated just what a cash drain these would be on resources. Because archives require a lot of climate control. They require a lot of storage. They require a lot of maintenance. It's not cheap to maintain libraries. Not by a long shot. Then lastly, the Presidential Historic Records Preservation Act of 2008 authorizes specific grants for repositories of excellence. So essentially, this is a way that uh, we can continue to bump a little bit more funding to these to get what they need done, done. And when you wonder, why is it so expensive? Well, it's estimated that these libraries contain 400 million pages, 10 million photos, 
15 million feet of motion picture film, 100,000 hours of audio tape and disc recordings, and an additional half a million, 500,000 various objects. So this could be, you know, a presidential ashtray. This could be something that was given to Lady Bird Johnson. All sorts of weird things that just somehow end up in the collection. I know that the last time I went to the Kennedy Presidential Library in Boston, it was the 50th anniversary, um, so it must have been 2003, a while ago, the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of JFK and Jacqueline Kennedy's wedding. So they had, you know, his morning suit and her wedding dress, and they had clothes and all sorts of things on display. Presidential libraries often contain ancillary materials. So for example, a president's cabinet members might donate their records to the library. A lot of architects donate their contributions, whether it's just for the presidential library or for other things that they might have done. Um, And some of these, you know, you have to think about the extensive lives that they had prior to the presidency. So, for example, FDR's collection contains all of his gubernatorial records for when he was governor of New York as well. Um, Dwight D. Eisenhower's museum contains all of his military records. In fact, it's arguable that his military records far outweigh his presidential records. In addition, they serve a variety of purposes. Now, where these presidential libraries are, it does vary. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the establishment and kind of how the trend starts. Um, Some of them are on sort of a random chosen location, but most of them are something that's somehow associated with the person's life. The earlier presidential libraries almost always coincide with a birthplace. Later ones are varied. Some are separate from the museum. Um, Probably noteworthy is Gerald Ford. So he is buried at the Gerald Ford Presidential Library, which is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. His library is actually associated with the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. So two totally different cities, two totally different repositories. There was a big push for a long time to have presidential libraries linked up with the university, which is really smart because the university already has a certain cataloging system in place. This falls apart in some cases. So, for example, the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library was originally supposed to be at Stanford. That fell through in 1987, and it ended up being built in Simi Valley instead, not associated with any university. There's a lot of very complex things that go on with these. They're complicated because not only are they expensive, not only are they the result of kind of a number of forces. So you have a nonprofit organization, theoretically, that's organized on behalf of the president. Some presidents are very involved. Some are barely involved at all. It's pretty interesting. Let, let's just put it this way. It's, it's very, very interesting. Now, do all presidents plan where they are going to be buried? The short answer is some do, some don't. It's a mix. I think that the trend has definitely moved towards having a pretty firm plan. Generally, funeral plans are placed on file with the military district of Washington, D.C., 
also known as the old guard. Um, these are the ones that you tend to see at military events like funerals. Some of them are complex. So, for example, the funeral plans for Ronald Reagan's funeral ran to the tune of 300 pages. Some of them are far more simple. Um, funerals, at least, tend to very heavily reflect on the individual and the circumstances. Obviously, the funeral of John F. Kennedy does take the cake as being the largest and most pomp and circumstance because of his assassination. Some of the more modest funerals, like Richard Nixon's, I think are far more personal preference. The gravesites follow not necessarily the most linear pattern, though, at least from what I have found among the presidential library graves. So what I decided to do is I'm going to run through them chronologically in terms of death, not necessarily in terms of presidency, just because I think that's kind of the easiest way to do it. To start off with, I will mention that we're going to be talking about a number of presidents. There are three presidential libraries that I have to get out of the way right away. So that is the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library, which is in Boston, designed by I.M. Pei. That is not Kennedy's burial site. He was buried at Arlington National Cemetery, as I'm sure you already know. So he is eliminated from the running. He has a presidential library, which is intact, but his burial site is not there. Lyndon Baines Johnson also has a presidential library, but he was buried on his family ranch. So to totally set his burial spot is not associated with his presidential library at all. The third is Jimmy Carter. And uh, Jimmy Carter, while still living, does have a presidential library, the Carter Center, about five minutes from my house. But he has already stated pretty emphatically that he is not planning to be buried at the Carter Center. He plans to be buried somewhere on his property in Plains, Georgia. And it was actually really interesting when I sat down and I read about Jimmy Carter's plans because I feel like they were almost a little shy to ask him at first. He was certainly not shy at all. Um, he talked about planes. He said, planes, quote, is special to us. I could be buried at Arlington National Cemetery wherever I wanted, but my wife was born here and I was born here. As a child, Carter briefly lived next door to his wife, Rosalind, and the two began dating in 1945 and they married the next year. Carter has worked tirelessly to keep his hometown vital. Through his efforts, parts of Plains and his boyhood home are now part of the Jimmy Carter National Historic Site, which is operated by the National Park Service and attracts more than 85,000 annual visitors. So, in this case, it will be a nationally maintained site. It still will be vital. It still will be linked with his childhood home. So, he is kind of going the same route that LBJ did. And some of the earlier presidents. Um, in this case, I think for him, it makes more sense for him to be buried in his hometown because he wants it to remain vital. He knows it will continue to make it a pilgrimage spot as opposed to him being buried in Atlanta, which is not his hometown. And um, I have been to Plains, Georgia. I did a project in neighboring Webster County about two years ago. And um, we couldn't find a place to stay in Webster County because there's only one hotel, or I should say motel, and it's a bit of a no-tell motel. So we drove to nearby Americus, Georgia, which 
to call America's booming might be a slight over adjustment. Um, but it's hard to describe if you haven't been out there how, just how in the middle of nowhere this place is. I mean, it's lovely country, very pretty peanut farms, but there's not much out there. So I, I kind of commend Carter because he is, um, cognizant of the truth of the matter and is sticking to his guns and wants to do the best for his hometown. I will talk a little later about some of the other living presidents. I will say that in terms of Donald Trump in particular and Joseph Biden, we don't know yet. They have not made statements, but I'll speculate a little bit more on that towards the end. So the question of where did this tradition start? Well, not surprisingly, it starts with FDR. And I say not surprisingly because FDR starts a lot of presidents, uh, obviously our only four-term president. So FDR died um, pretty suddenly on April 12, 1945, of a cerebral hemorrhage. He actually died here in Georgia at um, the Little White House, and he was transported from Warm Springs to D.C., where he had a funeral in the East Room of the White House, and then was taken on to Hyde Park on April 15th. So FDR is buried at Springwood, which was his estate in Hyde Park, New York. It's uh, just north of Poughkeepsie, kind of along the Hudson River Valley. And he had expressed in a letter on December 26, 1937, so about eight years before his death, that he, quote, wanted to be buried where the sundial stands in the garden. He donated the land and the estate to the American people with the caveat that so long as his family lived, they could retain a lifetime usage of the property. They actually made the decision to relinquish this right on November 21st, 1945, so about six months after he died. And at that point, it was transferred to the Department of the Interior, which it's run now under the auspices of the National Park Service. FDR definitely follows the George Washington, Thomas Jefferson model, where he was very explicit about what he wanted his grave to look like. He requested white marble, from the Vermont Marble Company in Proctor, Vermont. If you're a longtime listener, you know this is the white marble. Um, it's also what is used in the majority of Washington, D.C., including the Capitol building. In addition to that, it is used for a lot of military headstones. Kind of classic. So he requested plain white marble without carving or decoration, situated on an east-west axis in the garden, the dimensions would be eight feet long, four feet wide, three feet in height on a base that extended two feet around the perimeter. Eleanor was buried beside him in 1962. I have also read that beloved pets are buried here. I was not able to confirm that, but I have read rumor that there are pets. Also, I will say that there is an adorable child out there that is trying to visit all of the presidential grave sites and blogs about it. And I may have spent a worryingly long amount of time reading his descriptions because they're so cute. This kind of sets the early precedent, both for design and for what people were looking for. FDR was very explicit. It's very simple. It's, it's a lovely situated grave. It's 
as I described, very plain. It's a plain white square. It's not a sarcophagus. It is a headstone. Um, obviously large, but still very, very simple. Um, surrounded by a number of different types of flowers. Um, I saw one of the pictures on the National Park Service site that showed it, what it must have been early June, surrounded by thousands of peonies. And I'm a sucker. I love peonies. They're my favorite flower. Um, of every hue, light pink, that dark, you know, reddish pink and white in bloom, um, roses. It's a very picturesque location. It's exactly what you would expect. Um, I saw some lovely historic photos that showed, you know, Eleanor visiting the grave and laying wreaths and things like that. This not only sets the precedent for being buried at a presidential site, but I think also a lot of the aesthetics because with the exception of one grave that we will talk about today they are all very simple there is nothing overblown about any of these graves not by a long shot all right moving on next to die in order is herbert hoover who dies on october 20th 1964 at the age of 90 his presidential library is in west branch iowa This is very similar to the FDR situation where it overlooks his birthplace. Um, his wife, Lou Henry Hoover, had actually died in 1945 and was buried in Palo Alto, California. So she was moved as part of this. A lot of these graves, and this was one of the things that actually surprised me quite a bit that I didn't realize, they are all very hometown I would have thought that they would have brought national architects in and that there would have been a lot of pomp and circumstance, but that does not appear to be the case. In the case of the Hoover gravesite, it was designed by William Wagner, who was an architect from Iowa. He graduated from Iowa State in 1939, born in 1915, died tragically in a car accident at the age of 85 in 2001. And this guy is great. I very much enjoyed reading about Mr. Wagner. Um, he was a member of the American Institute of Architects. He was also on the advisory board for the Historic American Building Survey and really a pioneer of historic preservation. Um, I read multiple interviews where he talks about how, quote, once historic buildings are torn down, they can't be replaced and new structures will never have the charm or the history. And in a newspaper article about his life, someone described that talking to William Wagner was, quote, like a golf ball teed off in a four by four tile bathroom, which, wow, that's a great and very vivid description. Uh, apparently, everything just kept bouncing and echoing. But he describes a very, very simple semicircular gravesite and this is again going to be a huge trend that continues throughout the presidential library gravesites um it's essentially a half circle of grass with a walkway in front um the graves are on one side there's a flagpole on the other separating the graves from the birthplace they again are white marble in this case however they are ledger stones they're extremely simple I couldn't find it somewhere, but it appears that they're set over a very dark gray or black granite base, which something leads me to believe that that is not original, that that may have been done afterwards. I don't know if it was like some sort of improvement that was made. 
apparently one of the things that was requested by Hoover was that they should have the very quintessential Quaker simplicity. If you have ever seen Quaker graveyards, um, they have the bare minimum. This is a very basic gravesite, a hundred percent, very plain that there's nothing really distinguishing about any of these graves. Um, but again, like I said, that sends, seems to be the overall trend that these are, for the most part, very understated. And if you look at the design of presidential libraries, these are not crazy, super eclectic buildings. There is a very austere simplicity to a lot of them. Okay, so after Hoover, obviously you realize we skipped Kennedy because, like I said, Kennedy is buried at, at uh, Arlington National Cemetery. Kennedy was covered briefly at the end of episode nine, I believe, on Catholic cemeteries. Ashley and I mentioned him. At some point, I should probably do a whole episode on the Kennedy gravesite, um, just because it's a good story and I know a lot about it. But boy, having done research on the other presidential gravesites, I realized just how exceptional Kennedy's is, both in terms of John Carl Warnecke's architecture, the materials, the thoughtfulness that went into the design, the way it's situated, a lot of things. So Dwight D. Eisenhower dies March 28th, 1969, in his um, presidential library is in Abilene, Kansas. Eisenhower is interesting because technically he is buried at his presidential library, but he is buried in a chapel. As far as I can tell, he is the only modern president buried in a chapel, um, Eisenhower has a big state funeral. Uh, he dies at Walter Reed. He lies, let's say, at the Capitol. Um, spends some time in the Bethlehem Chapel of the National Cathedral. Quite a bit of pomp and circumstance. Obviously, Eisenhower is incredibly decorated from his service in World War II. I already mentioned that his presidential library is far more about his military service even than his presidency. Um... Eisenhower, though, interestingly enough, he is buried in a standard, well, what is essentially a standard issue government casket. So at the time of his death in 69, the standard issue government casket was about $80. Apparently for his, they had to add an extra seal, which bumped the cost up to $115. But he was buried in the same casket, essentially, as every other U.S. soldier was given. He was buried in his World War II uniform with the very classic iconic green jacket, which, you know, had the name Ike on it. You've probably seen the pictures. Um, Despite the fact being he was one of the more decorated members of the military, he was only buried with three, um, three medals, the Army Distinguished Service Medal, the Navy Distinguished Service Medal, and the Legion of Merit. So the chapel... And it's so interesting because I, I later read a pretty scathing review by another architect of it. It's extremely modern architecture. Um, it does predate. It was built 1965-1966, and it looks like it. Um, this chapel has a very prominent steeple. There is a lot of stained glass. It's a little tacky. I would say it's borderline, but... Without a doubt, I think it's also the most interesting space of any of these presidential library burials, by far. Um, again, it's situated directly across from the Eisenhower birthplace. Um, in addition to the stained glass windows, there is a lot of travertine. Uh, all of the woodwork is walnut. 
There is a very impressive embroidered tapestry that has the prayer that Eisenhower recited his first inaugural address um, on January 20th, 1953. The chapel was prepared before his death, so he and his wife's oldest son, Dowd Dwight, poor kid, who died at the age of three in 1921, was moved there in 66. Then Eisenhower would be buried in 69. Mamie would join him 10 years later in 79. All of this design was done by a James C. Canole, Canole, C-A-N-O-L-E, graduate of the University of Kansas in 1949. He died in 2006. He was the state architect of Kansas starting in 1961. So this seems to be the most institutional, quote-unquote, of the architects um, because he did work for the state. In a cruel tease, the Eisenhower Library does have a whole paper where he breaks down and records his memories of the entire building of the chapel, but it's not digitized. And sadly, right now, I can't travel to Kansas. So if I ever do find that, I would be very interested because I think there could be an interesting paper in this. Um, But essentially, kind of floating in the middle of the chapel are these freestanding travertine walls with you know three quotes on them and then the graves the three graves are inside there is a ledger stone on top so a stone ledger and then at the base is a small bronze placard that actually has the names on them like I said there's a lot going on here very visually stimulating and then on the back side of that freestanding kind of three-walled enclosure that encloses the graves is the meditation space. If you have seen this type of church architecture, basically in any local church or things like that from the 50s and 60s, it's pretty spot on. It is very of the time. So I could see how people could be a little bit critical of this particular one. If I had to make a call on who has the most boring grave, I would have to go with Harry S. Truman, who is our next death on December 26, 1972. His presidential library is in Independence, Missouri, a place that, likewise, I don't have a lot of thoughts on. Um, This was the first presidential library built after the 1955 Act. His grave is very much out in the open. So he is buried in the courtyard in front of the entrance to the library. So essentially it's just the two graves in the middle of like the front plaza. You know, they're surrounded by bollards with chains. So like you can't stand on top of the graves, but they are kind of by themselves. There is far less landscaping than some of the others. A lot of the other presidential burial spots seem to be like in little nooks and alcoves that are part of the property but are not front and center. These are very front and center. They are gray granite ledger stones. Um, From what I can recall, Harry Truman's obviously has like the presidential seal on it. Bess Truman, who died in 1982, so 10 years after her husband. Hers is... I'm trying to remember what was at the top of hers. I think it was like a laurel wreath, something very traditionally funerary. In addition, Margaret Truman Daniel, his daughter who died in 2008, and her husband Clifton Daniel were cremated 
and are also buried in this little memorial plot area. They're kind of like low hedges, very, very nondescript plantings. This is the one that it's, it's very forgettable. Even though I read about it recently, I'm still kind of like, eh, I can't say that much about it. Um, could not find a distinct architect on this one. There is also far less planning than some of these other spots. So it's kind of like, I wonder if it was just incorporated in with the construction of the building. Now, there is a huge jump. So a jump of 22 years before we have the next death. And that is Richard Nixon, who dies on April 22nd, 1994. Nixon obviously leaves office after his resignation in a bit of disgrace. So there hasn't been a presidential death since he was in office at this point. He has nothing in D.C. Nothing. He does not lie in state in D.C., no proceedings at the White House, nothing. He always said he very much felt like he was an outsider in Washington. Certainly after his presidency, he did not feel welcome there. But it's very interesting because when you read about Nixon's funeral, there's a great deal of outpouring of support and everybody was there. All of the living presidents at the time... You know, Nixon seems like a fairly simple guy, you know, buried a wood coffin. Um, His grave by far has the most, you know, basic and very delicate markers. He also is buried at his birthplace. So his birthplace is just steps away from where he was buried. It's very, very close. Um, I really wish his grave marker looked, because he has like a rough cut like boulder granite sign with a bronze plaque on it outside the birthplace and at first I thought that was the grave and I was like oh that's cool I love that but it's not his and um Pat who Pat Reagan died um in June of 1993 right before him so she was buried before him um they have very simple slanted black granite stones which the early 90s is a little early for this but Hey, Richard Nixon was a trendsetter. Um, but yeah, it's so interesting because, I mean, Billy Graham officiated his funeral. He was eulogized by Henry Kissinger and Bob Dole. You know, watching footage from his funeral, I mean, it was a very emotional event. And there was a big outpouring, especially when you think about how kind of unpopular he was afterwards. It's not printed anywhere, but I, I did think it was interesting. I saw a copy of the program for his funeral. And the quote that they chose was, quote, We think that when someone dear to us dies, we think that when we lose an election, we think that when we suffer defeat, that all is ended. Not true. It is a beginning. Always. Interesting for a philo- philosophy for that particular man. Um... But again, the overall trend seems to be a semicircular area with plantings around. Like I said, by far, these are the smallest. And I mean, tiny, like if you were in any other cemetery, I would have said you were going for the bargain option. They're small, slightly slanted, but definitely small, not quite garden style markers, but definitely small black grant markers. 
To swing the opposite direction, 10 years later, when Ronald Reagan dies in June of 2004, we get into his 300-page funeral. Reagan arguably, and I don't have necessary numbers, has the largest funeral since JFK. And I'm not sure, like, based on population, whether it was technically bigger or not. I can say that when he lay in state in California, 108,000 people came to visit and file past his coffin. When it was taken to Washington, almost another 105,000. So over 220,000 people. So almost a quarter of a million people came to see Reagan when he was lying in state. And I will say, personally, this is the first state funeral I really remember. I don't remember when Richard Nixon died. Um, I mean, I was old enough, I should have remembered, but frankly, I don't. I do remember Ronald Reagan's funeral. I remember it. I remember watching it all on TV, probably because, you know, I was a teenager and it was June, so it was probably summer vacation, so I think I would have been home and able to watch it. Um, Betty Road, um, who was the assistant Senate historian at the time, talked about how Reagan-style funeral, quote, became the standard procedure of the 20th century because with the advent of television, it gave the American people the opportunity to participate in the funeral in a way that they couldn't before. I don't know if I necessarily agree with this because you hear about the crowds waiting for the funeral train of Abraham Lincoln the same thing happened when FDR died. People were lining railroad stations just to see his funeral train go by. I think there's always been a fascination, even going back towards George Washington. People held mock funerals for him. People went into mourning for him. I think that, I mean, presidents are our kings, if nothing else. And I think that, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that the inauguration this week was Maybe a bigger deal even than it has been in the past, but they are America's royalty, and there is a fascination with them as the embodiment of the American dream. So I don't think it has anything to do with the advent of television. I really don't. I think that maybe making things more public and making presidents more accessible to the public is a big thing. I would agree with that. It starts with JFK. You know, Jacqueline Kennedy makes a very public statement about the fact that he, he belongs to the people now. That's why she buried him at Arlington. The popularity of Arlington skyrockets after Kennedy's death. But obviously some of these trends had already begun before then. And at the end, I'm going to talk, I'm going to speculate a little bit more about why presidential libraries are the choice. And I'm not sure I have a definitive answer, but I have a few thoughts. So, Ronald Reagan, it's interesting because I saw a bunch of pictures from the groundbreaking of the Reagan Library. And I already mentioned that there was a whole bunch of hullabaloo, how they had to change the site. But when they picked the site, which is kind of high up in the mountains and overlooks the ocean, it's very picturesque. At the groundbreaking, they actually chose both the site and the time of his burial which was going to be at sunset because it, he said it would be his ultimate closing scene. Never let it to be said that Ronald Reagan wasn't an actor till the very end. Now, arguably, 
the Reagan Library, even though they're missing 80,000 items. Maybe the most dramatic, too. At the time it was built, it was the largest. I believe that Bill Clinton's has since surpassed it in terms of square footage. But for God's sakes, Reagan wanted Air Force One at his library, and he got it there. You can actually tour Air Force One there. So it's pretty, pretty iconic. Um, My favorite scathing review of Reagan's funeral was in The Village Voice, where they called it a, a Wagnerian opera. And they loved to take pot shots at, uh, at Nancy. Nancy was very emotional from the funeral, if you remember watching it. Um, she joined Ronnie at the site in 2016 following her death. His gravesite is termed technically the memorial site. And it's interesting because it, it's essentially like in the shape of a Greek omega where there's a half circle of granite that has like two wings extending. So if you looked at it from above, it would definitely look like an omega. And in the center are, you know, the two small monuments set in the plaza. Um, So this was my favorite for a couple of reasons. Um, I found a fantastic diary documenting from the day that Reagan died to the day that the burial was concluded, written by um, an employee of Sucre Industries, SU. H-O-R, Suhor, Suhor, I'm not sure how you actually pronounce it, but they are the vault company who created the bronze vault for Reagan's casket. Talk about like how they drove it on a flatbed across the country through the whole process of them opening it up, you know, working through the night. So after the funeral, when he was interred, how they interred him, I'm going to post a link to it because it's way too long to read on air. But it's actually really fascinating. So Reagan's funeral was handled by um, Service Corp International, SCI, who are, you know, the the kings of the funeral industry um, based out of Houston, Texas. But it's just so interesting about how tightly controlled it was and them talking about the Secret Service wanting to search the vault and them struggling because they realized they couldn't take the 900-pound lid off. Really fast. Like, if you were interested in how, like, the actual logistics of how this stuff works, like rolling this 5,000 pound bronze burial vault into the pre poured concrete slot that had been poured, you know, 30 years before, getting it in there and getting the rollers out, and how they had to put 20 pounds of crushed ice to support it underneath. I know I'm a nerd. I know I'm really into this stuff, but for me, It's that logistical stuff that I live for. I am far more interested in that than the long list of dignitaries that was at his funeral. The how and the why and the technical aspect of it are very interesting to me. I know that might not be what other people are into. But to me, that's way more interesting and kind of like the ingenuity and how they had to get it all done before dawn and how excited they were about getting it completed (laughs) The fact that the next morning when you went to the gravesite, you couldn't even tell that the burial had happened because where they had ripped open the earth to bury the coffin, they had poured a new concrete sidewalk by the time dawn came around. Like that to me is just crazy, the amount of work that goes into that. That's what happens when you have a 300-page plan for your funeral. Everything is timed down to the exact moment. Reagan... um, 
in his case on that sort of omega shaped surround it says quote i know in my heart that man is good that what is right will always triumph and there is a purpose and worth to each and every life so interesting um i don't think i mentioned on this hugh stubbins and associates were the architects on this particular one again because it was incorporated into the original plan, it was basically executed from the beginning on out. Poor, poor W. George Bush Jr., George Walker Bush, he was the first president to have two other presidents die under his reign. Um, so in 2006, two years after Ronald Reagan's death, Gerald Ford dies. Um, on December 26, 2006, became, I believe, the second president that died on the 26th of December. They always say a lot of people hold on for one last Christmas. I guess it's true even for um, presidents. Um, Gerald Ford, as I already mentioned, his presidential library is in, in uh, Ann Arbor, whereas his museum, presidential museum, is in Grand Rapids. So this is the museum, not the library. Um, the Gerald Ford Museum wins, hands down, for the jankiest website. In my notes, I write, jankiest website, 1997, question mark, because that's when it looks like it was created. It has, like, a clip art American flag. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was looking at it, I was like, what, what is going on, even? This was designed by Marvin DeWinter, who went to the University of Michigan. And I read an in-depth article where he was interviewed in 2010. And he breaks down, essentially, the design of the whole library. And it's interesting because he actually was the architect who was very critical of the place of meditation and he was critical of it because he said that it does not feel like it incorporates into the site at all. And I would tend to agree with him. Like, if you look at the Dwight Eisenhower Library, if you look at the birthplace, it's kind of like, we have this super modern chapel. One of these things is not like the other. And certainly, having studied the Kennedy gravesite, you know, the idea that that needed to seamlessly integrate into the existing style of Arlington while still being reflective of the president himself, it's a challenge. As an architect, it is a challenge. And in case of Marvin, in the case of Marvin De Winter, like the previous example with the Reagan Library, he started to plan the burial site when he planned the museum. Um, I actually saw a, a news story that I watched with the curator of the museum. I did not realize that people from Grand Rapids were known as Grand Rapidians, and I very much giggled every time I heard that, because it it sounds fake, but also I don't mean to demean the people of Grand Rapids, it's just I never thought of it as Grand Rapidians. Um, the Gerald Ford site, it's interesting, because this one, I ha again, I had to think about what it looked like. Um... When I wrote my Kennedy article, and um, fun fact, if you are in gravestone studies and you write about a quote-unquote modern site, 
Yes, the Kennedy gravesite, despite the fact that it is more than 50 years old now, is considered modern in the history of gravestones. It is extremely difficult to find peer reviewers for your articles because in the world of gravestone studies, most people stop at 1850. (laughs) So my peer reviewer, and I probably shouldn't even admit this because it makes me sound like a terrible academic, made two comments. One was, I I forget, it was something very basic, like just about like how I referred to something. The second one was, have you ever been to the Gerald Ford burial site? It's beautiful. And I remember I had to look it up and I was like, hmm, yeah, no, not so much. I mean, it's fine. Again, it's kind of forgettable. But the interesting thing is, is that I would not have known this. The site, which overlooks the river in Grand Rapids, was actually created. So there is a hill there. And it's interesting because they build almost like a mound and there is kind of like a curved recess into it. So it almost looks like a receiving vault, except there's no actual vault opening. So they planted trees on top of the hill and then there is like a curved opening, which makes kind of like a nice little park. And the memorial itself is kind of like a rough faced concrete with raised metal letters. So this makes it kind of unique compared to other presidential libraries. So I respect that about DeWinter's design because it, it does set itself apart. It's, it's a little bit more rustic. The quote that is on there is pretty simple. Lives committed to God, country, and love. Um, when Betty died in 2011, she was also there. But I will say he was super excited about this. He described it as the panels that are set into the hill peel back like sections of an orange. So like with Reagan, what they did was at the time that they built it, the actual concrete like opening for the grave was built into the hillside so that when the burial happened, essentially all you had to do was pop one of these covers off, slide them in. The best, the best part of this interview was that he said that one day Betty Ford was on a bridge going over the river and she saw the burial site, which she had never seen before. And she said to her husband, don't you think I ought to see where people are going to dance on my grave? Which I really loved. Apparently Bill Clinton said, quote, this is so Jerry Ford. This is perfect Jerry Ford. It's calm, it's peaceful, and it's understated. So I think that's good. When people can see a site, and these people don't necessarily have to be architects, they don't have to be schooled in design in any way, but when they can see that place as a reflection of the individual. So while I might not have thought much of it at first glance, I can also sort of appreciate it. I also love the fact that it kind of looks like it's in the shape of a football. Apparently, football was very much on the mind because when I read, I read the full interview with the architect. He talked a lot about like the dimensions that he used building the museum and things like that. And I mean, Gerald Ford, other than the fact that in my mind, he looks a lot like Buffalo Bill from The Silence of the Lambs. 
the other thing, I, I don't tend to think of him as being particularly presidential in other aspects, but everybody knows the, you know, the football side of him. So, which brings me up, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on Bush Sr., just because his funeral was only, at this point, almost three years ago now. I'm sure that most of you saw it on television, and it's still pretty fresh in your minds, so I'm not going to go too deep down that rabbit hole. But the Bushes, like the Eisenhowers before them, um, did have a daughter who died at the age of three. Um, Robin Bush um, died of leukemia. Um, her, actu- her actual name, and I did not know this, was Pauline Robinson Bush, but everybody called her Robin. And it's interesting because Barbara Bush reflected later on that she doubted even that George and his and Jeb knew her real name. She said, you know, we never referred to her as Pauline. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, She was named after Barbara Bush's mother who had died right before her birth. Um, So she was originally buried in um, Greenwich, Connecticut, along with her grandparents, along with um, George H.W. Bush's parents. And so she was moved prior to the burial of Barbara Bush to the same location um, in Texas. So Bush's Memorial Library uh, is on the campus of Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas. And it's, it's interesting for a number of different reasons, but primarily I think it's interesting because in terms of design... This is definitely the, shall we say, most demonstrative. I don't want to say that in a bad way. Um, it's a little gaudy, but everything's bigger in Texas, right? So it's about a half a mile from the actual entrance to the presidential library. You wind around behind the library. There's a, like a long path. You go past the Barbara Bush Rose Garden to this clearing overlooking a lake. So you basically go around the lake and on the other side of the lake is the grave site. And as I'm sure you saw, the photographs, you know, were pretty legion, I remember, from the the actual Bush funeral. But there is a very distinctive fence around the edge. And the fence has gold stars. So it's, you know, a... Pretty typical, like, black steel or cast iron fence. Probably steel. Um, there is, like, a low stone retaining wall. It's the most, I think, thoughtfully designed, probably, of the modern burial spots. And then inside, there's another one of these kind of, like, omega-shaped, almost like a palladium window-shaped plaza with the presidential seal in the middle, and then beyond it are the just three very basic um, gray granite markers. Bush in the center, flanked by his wife and Robin. Um, And behind Bush, there is a white Carrara marble cross. Um, In terms of design aesthetic, so while the outside with the, you know, gold stars that are on the fence... 
are a little bit on the gaudy side. The interior is actually very simple. Um, they are actually smaller markers even than Richard Nixon's, Richard and Pat Nixon's. It reminds me most, if I were to talk about grave sites, um, actually of Robert Kennedy's grave site at Arlington. So not JFK's, but Robert Kennedy's, which was designed by I.M. Pei, um, same architect who was commissioned for the Kennedy Presidential Library. Um, you know, Robert Kennedy was a big, big advocate of just like a plain white cross. And so he has a plain white cross as his marker. But there is a small plaza with a water feature behind it that was designed by I.M. Pei. But the bush graves themselves are very simple, whereas the surround is a little bit more exotic. But um, I think it's great. One of the reasons that he chose that location by the lake, though, was because the lake has a public policy that anyone can fish there. And so prior to um, both his and Barbara's death, because Barbara died about six months before her husband, you can actually see there are photographs of Bush himself catching catfish in the lake. So... I do kind of like that. I like the idea that it's incorporating the character of the individual with the gravesite. Now, in addition to that, one of the most interesting things that I read about this was that prior to Barbara Bush's death, the plans of Bush Jr. were actually different for his burial. And that this particular site actually changed his mind. Which, I'm going to read to you a little bit um, from an article in the Statesman, which is a Texas paper. Former President George W. Bush and his wife Laura had an upgraded reservation for an extended stay here in Austin. But they have changed their minds and will not check in when they check out. Okay. Back in October of 2016, I told you that the Bushes had decided on the Texas State Cemetery in East Austin as their eventual final resting place. The Texas State Cemetery Committee and cemetery staff are honored that President and Mrs. Bush have chosen the cemetery for their burial sites, Harry Bradley, the superintendent, said back then. Now comes word that the Bushes have changed their minds and instead plan to be buried on the grounds of the George W. Bush Presidential Library at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Bush spokesperson Freddie Ford confirmed the change. The reason, he said, was simple. Quote, when President Bush went to his mother's burial, which was at the Bush Library at College Station, he felt that there was a nice permanence to the library there, and he and Mrs. Bush decided that they wanted to do the same thing, so they will be laid to rest in Texas. So it's interesting because I read um, like the previous article that he alludes to about 2016. And the fact was they, they were actually very enthusiastic about being buried in this public cemetery, which has quite a few famous burials as well. Um, but the best part is like the cemetery was totally into this. Like apparently there was kind of an old disused like pavilion that they spent $35,000 ripping up, and they were like, this is it. This is going to be where the bushes are going to be buried. They already had very grand plans for this burial site, and then they were like, "Mm, sorry, now we're going to go the presidential library route. So I won't lie. I'm also a little disappointed that they chose not to do this because 
I think it would have been interesting after essentially half a century of presidential library practices to go back to being buried in a public cemetery. I would have really liked that. So deep down, I'm a little disappointed. Um, Bill Clinton has announced his plans. He will be buried at his presidential library in Little Rock. Now, do I think that this is just convenient? Does it just make more sense? I think that's part of it. I think that part of it is also that you have this massive pool of money. You're building everything. You build the burial plan in at the same time. Um, I think that's part of it. But I'm going to talk about why I don't think that this is going to continue. So I read this article. Will the Obama Center include gravesites? So, when James L. Skip Rutherford, a close friend of President Bill Clinton, was overseeing the planning and construction of the Clinton Presidential Center and Park in Little Rock, Arkansas. Whoops. The Chicago Sun-Times is trying to bump me out. No, I don't want to subscribe. Um, it's okay. I can paraphrase it. I don't need to read you the actual article. This is one of the perils of being a researcher. But essentially the problem was that, so they chose, like, when the Clintons brought it up and they were like, hey, if you're planning it, go ahead and we'll pick out the spot and we'll go with that. In May of 2017, during the planning of the Barack Obama Presidential Center in Chicago, which is supposed to be in Jackson Park, a switch was made where they decided that it will not be part of of the National Archives. But rather, Barack Obama's presidential library will be part of a quote-unquote new model where the nonprofit Obama Foundation will partner with the National Archives, where the National Archives will help them to digitize what needs to be digitized. I wonder, in the future... If presidential libraries will go this route, I think that the national government has realized that they are very expensive and tricky to maintain. So I think that they are already starting with the planning of the Obama library to step out of the picture. Likewise, the city of Chicago has said that the Obamas cannot be buried at the planned Obama Center in Jackson Park because Chicago City Ordinances state that burial is not permitted outside of a licensed cemetery. Now, there are no words what the Obama's official funeral plans are. But I think it's an interesting development because I also have to wonder that as other alternatives, as the rise of cremation, as the rise of green burial... Will this type of presidential burial continue to be a trend in the future? And I wonder if not having the presidential library as an option will maybe encourage that choice. These are places of pilgrimage. Thousands upon thousands visit these gravesites every year. Despite the fact that these presidents have been dead, some of them 20, 30, 40, 50 years people still go and visit them. And they go and visit for a number of reasons. They visit the museums. They visit for a lot of reasons. But you have to wonder 
if the emphasis is no longer being placed on the library and the burial site as an added attraction to the library, because the burial sites are almost always free. So you might have to pay to go into the museums. You might have to pay for certain exhibits, but the burial spots are always free. And lots of people talk about like, hey, we drove up, we walked over to the burial site, we saw it and we left. They're still accessible to the public. I have to be curious if this impediment on the part of the Obamas might change some of the facts. There is a long trend of, you know, moving remains. So if you look at something like Joseph Biden, will he want to be buried near his first wife and daughter? Will he want to be buried near Beau Biden? You know, will the trend of, you know, moving family remains to be at presidential libraries continue or will it not? I don't know. But this move with the Obama library makes me very curious about whether or not the establishment of presidential libraries will continue. Like I said, all presidents have libraries, but not all libraries are presidential libraries. And I wonder if they are going to start falling out of favor. From what I have read, that already seems to be the trend. So I'll be excited to see. I'll be curious to see what happens from here on in. Um, if I had to pick, I would definitely send Donald Trump to Forest Lawn. I feel like, you know, being buried near Liberace, being buried near Michael Jackson, perhaps something with a lot of gaudy gold might be the best way for him. But I don't know. Maybe there'll be something different just speculating. That just feels like the right call. And Forest Lawn does things very tastefully, even for the most glittering among us. So that's my take on the graves of presidents at presidential libraries. I know it was a lot. It was essentially 10 presidents more um, in an hour and 10 minutes. So I know it's a little bit of a long episode, but I was really curious. And Still, there's a lot of gaps in, you know, the progression of how things happen. I can see certain trends. I can see certain things that are popular. There are certainly outliers. Eisenhower, by far, with his chapel, weird meditation, 60s modernist chapel. He's the outlier. There are certain, you know, kind of bedrock trends that run through all of them. But also, anything's game. I think that there is still a lot of room for individuality and expression, even though all of them follow in a similar vein. So hopefully that didn't bore you too much on a week when there has been a lot of presidential history and a lot of presidential facts. Maybe it'll inspire you once they reopen, because all of them are closed right now, to go out and visit some presidential gravesites if you can. As always, thank you for your ratings, reviews, following along on social media. If you are liking the podcast, please, please, please take just a couple of minutes, sign in, and give me a five-star review because it really does help make me more searchable to all of those new guys and gals out there. Um, I am on social media, Facebook, Tomb of the View Podcast, and on Instagram at Tomb Period with Period A Period View. Got some exciting stuff. Still waiting for my new podcast equipment to come in. Makes me very nervous. It's taking forever. But I am still waiting for it to come in. Hopefully that will arrive next week. Fingers crossed. We shall see. As always, if you have any suggestions for upcoming episodes, things you would like to hear about, questions for me, feel free to reach out either via social media or 
at my email address, tomboftheviewpodcast at gmail.com. But for now, happy Inauguration Day. Joe Biden, really hope you don't die yet. We, uh, we've got plans for you in the meantime. So uh, we won't talk too much about your burial spot just yet. For now, I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb of the View.